Before we open the Bible, uh, I want to say something just kind of as, a, as an introduction. And um, I don't say this in a, uh, I don't mean this in a self-important way. But I don't believe, and I want to remind you as, as Christians, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, there's really nothing more important that we could be doing right now than opening the Bible together and considering what God says to us. It's the most important thing we do. God's power is bound up in His Word. He is, he is promised to speak to His people in such a way that by the Holy Spirit, God's Word has the power to change our lives forever. Not because of my preaching, right? Not because of what I'm saying or because it's special the way I'm saying it, but because it's God's Word. Because His Spirit chooses to work through it. And so, I don't need to sell you anything today. You're not hopefully here for me or to hear me. You're here for Jesus. And today we will find Jesus in Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. It says, When Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So if you're keeping up in Galatians, there are these false teachers saying that Paul is preaching a different gospel than the other apostles, and they have been spreading these lies behind Paul's back. But notice that Paul confronts Peter directly. Okay? Why? Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he, that's Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. To me, this sounds like a, a high school lunchroom drama. Okay? Peter switches tables when the cool kids walk in, and the peer pressure even gets to Barnabas. And Paul calls this hypocrisy. And he challenges it because it had major implications for the early church. Peter's actions did not match his beliefs. And that's how Paul explains the problem. Verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter did this publicly. Paul addresses it publicly. 
And if Paul had let this go, then everyone would assume that this hypocrisy was okay. If you remember, Peter has already agreed with Paul's presentation of the gospel message. Not only in principle, but in practice. Because Peter no longer followed the ceremonial law himself unless the right people were watching. Right? And that was a serious problem. His conduct betrayed the gospel he claimed to believe. His actions also risked dividing Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians into first-class and second-class Christians. And that was Paul's concern. Verse 15. He says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Three times Paul uses the word justified, which is a legal term, and it means the opposite of condemned. It speaks to the question, how does a person escape the condemnation of God? That was the question of the rich young man in Matthew 19, right? What must I do to be saved? Saved from what? The wrath of God. What must I do to be not condemned? And every religion on the planet answers that question with some form of law. The works of the law, as Paul says. Jews believed, wrongly, that they would be justified by keeping the law. This is why it had become so easy for them to think of themselves as first-class people and everyone else as second-class. Instead, Paul teaches something different. We escape the condemnation of God by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Now, Paul didn't make this up, okay? I want you to be clear. This isn't something Paul invented, as we've already talked about. In fact, Paul will explain clearly in chapter 3 that the Jews have always misunderstood the purpose of the law. The law is good and it's right, but it's not how any of us are justified before God. The law, in fact, can only condemn us. And God's people have always, even in the Old Testament, have always been reconciled to Him by faith and not by works. 
Okay? So one more time, just to be clear, we are not saved by doing good things. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. That's the truth of the gospel. And in fact, that is the primary article of all Christian doctrine. In the words of Martin Luther, this is the knowledge that we must beat into our heads continually. Verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not, Paul says. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. What is he saying? Okay. Paul here is seeking to answer a very common objection. He's going to mention this several times. Because people who rely on works will always claim that the gospel is a license to sin. And it, the logic goes like this, okay? If I believe in Jesus, then I can live however I want, right? Because of grace. I mean, does it really matter if I sin because I'm forgiven? That's the logic, okay? And so that's what Paul means when he asks, does that make Christ a servant of sin, right? So if, if we keep sinning deliberately, is Jesus going to just keep pouring grace on it? And Paul responds by calling this an absurd question. It's a bad question. Because I'm not just believing in Jesus... Paul says, I am united to Jesus. Dying to the law, he says, also means living to God. And so now we've come to the most famous verse in the entire letter of Galatians. You ready for it? Verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose." What he does is Paul takes the, the legal reality of the gospel and he makes it personal. You see that? 
verse 20 sings to us. Because grace is an experience, not just an idea. It's really a person, not just a, not just a principle, right? And notice that Paul does not say, I was converted by faith. He says what? He says, I live by faith. Continuously. Daily. In other words, this truth is set to repeat in the playlist of his soul. I live by this. I didn't just believe it and move on like I checked a box. I live by this gospel because believing what God says is true of me will change the way I see God, will change the way I see myself, change the way I see other people, will change the way I live. Who am I now? Who am I in Christ? I'm someone who died and rose again in Him. Elsewhere, Paul says that the old me, the me before Christ, is dead, right? The new me the me that's united to Christ is alive. And Jesus loves me. He gave Himself for me. I did not earn it by doing good. It was a free gift. It's something that I received with empty hands. And if I, if I try to offer Him something in return... If I start again to depend on the law, that's me saying that Christ's death was pointless. And this was the problem with Peter. Peter believed all of this. He did. But in a moment of sin, his actions demonstrated unbelief. He made it look like he didn't believe it. See the problem? And so Paul turns the question of law keeping back on his accusers. And this is brilliant, okay? The Bible is always beautiful to me, but this is one of my favorite parts. This is Paul's argument to the Jews. Pay close attention. He says, you guys are concerned that new believers will ignore the need for holy living. That they will just keep on sinning and living their pagan lifestyles without remorse because of grace. In other words, you're afraid that people's actions won't match their beliefs. And Paul says basically, I completely agree with your concern. 
And I'll give you an example. Peter says he believes the gospel. That Christians are justified by faith in Jesus. But in this moment, his actions don't match that belief. You see, any time, any time our conduct is not in step with the gospel, it's a problem. It's a, it's a moment of practical unbelief. It says to others, we believe something different than the gospel. And it sends mixed signals. And what I want you to see is this actually cuts both ways. It's a problem for people who try to add requirements to salvation. And it's a problem for people who ignore the seriousness and the consequences of sin. Both of those problems are examples of losing step with the gospel. And they are really two sides of the same coin, which is Paul's exact point. When you focus on something other than Christ, you start drifting out of step with the gospel. And that drifting could express itself in either way. Legalism, which is works righteousness, or license, which is living in unrepentant sin. And we tend to, at different points in our life, identify one with one or the other more, right? And when you're over here, it's easy to look at those people and say, they're the problem. And when you're over here, it's easy to look at those people and say, they're the problem. And neither in that conduct is demonstrating that we believe the gospel. Peter's mistake was that he refused to fellowship with other believers in that moment, even though they professed the same faith in Jesus. And today, there are plenty of Christians who make the same type of mistake. Refusing to fellowship with believers because they didn't receive the same mode of baptism. Refusing to fellowship with believers who disagree on matters of secondary theological importance. Refusing to fellowship with believers of a different skin color. Refusing to fellowship with believers from a different social class. God doesn't create these kinds of barriers to fellowship in His church. We do. We do. Peter needed to hear again the voice of Jesus. What God has made clean, do not call unclean. The only barrier between us and God is a lack of saving faith in Christ Jesus. 
we must accept the people whom God accepts on no other basis than a valid profession of faith. And yet, and yet, we also find here a defense of church discipline. Jesus gave His church the keys to the kingdom, which means that the elders of the church have a responsibility to make sure that everyone in the church is keeping in step with the gospel, meaning that we are united in Christ, one faith, one body. And what that means practically is that God does want us to confront legalism in the church as Paul confronts Peter. But He also wants us to confront unrepentant sin. Always in love, always prayerful, always with the hope of restoration. This is Paul's objective here, right? Not ultimately to cast out the brothers who failed, like Peter did and Barnabas and others. No, what was his objective? To correct the problem, to restore unity, and to get everyone marching again in step with the gospel. But if that repentance did not happen, if these men refused to stop breaking fellowship over this issue, Paul was ready to break fellowship with them for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of his Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. And we know there are plenty of churches today making the mistake of continuing fellowship with people who claim to love Jesus, but are completely unwilling to repent of things that God has clearly said are wrong. And that's not okay either. Brothers and sisters, all of this is serious business. Grace is powerful. It absolutely is. It is beautiful. It is life-giving. It is life-changing. But remember what it cost God. This was no little price. For God to show us grace required the horrific death of His only Son. I think that tells me that God takes sin very seriously. The legalistic kind and and everything else, right? And so when we receive grace, we die with Christ. We die to the law and we die to sin. And I want to end by trying to explain this one more time in very, very simple terms because it is so incredibly important. Our tendency is to come to God asking one of two questions. What must I do 
or what can I get away with? What must I do, God? What do you want from me? Or, okay, God, what can I get away with and still be saved? And those are both terrible questions. Grace teaches us to ask new questions of God. Better questions. Questions of faith. We ask, who am I now, God, in Christ? Who am I? Who do you say that I am? That's the first question. The second question is, and now, because I believe that's true, how should I live my life to bring you glory? You see the difference? It's a big difference. It's an important difference. Who am I? How can I live for you? Beat it into your head every single day. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, beautiful Savior, fairest of all. We come to You asking not just for grace and forgiveness, but that You would remind us of those things that we might also live for Your glory. Not by adding to the work that You've already accomplished because it is all sufficient. We have nothing to add. But Lord, we pray that You would work in our, in our lives by Your Spirit to make us more like You because that's what we want. Because we want to be like You. Because we want to bring You glory. So Father, convict us where we have tried to earn this. Convict us where we have tried to live our lives as if our forgiveness is a license to do whatever we want. In both cases, we need to see Christ again, to be reminded of what He's done for us and what You continue to do for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand soon.